It's a delight that we each have this morning to come together on an occasion like this one in the quietness and in the beauty of this hour and to appreciate the marvelous blessings that God has surrounded us with. The singing, as it always is here at Pippin, has been spirited. Our thoughts and prayer have turned to the matters of great and eternal import. And we are blessed with the ability to open the Word of God and be led and guided and directed by those eternal statements found in it. As always, we're mindful and thankful for our membership at Pippin and our visitors who have come our way today. Our trust is that each will be encouraged and edified in the most holy faith, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and that we each will get our week off to the start that will be no bettered by any other thing that we might have done this morning. As we give some thought to that lengthy sick list, I hope again that if you have opportunity, you'll pick up a bulletin as you exit the foyer. And certainly take note of those who continue to be in our prayers and thoughts. Uh, one additional name that might be, in fact, added to that list is the passing of Brother Stan Hensley. Uh, Stan passed away on Thursday, and his funeral is this afternoon. So if you would remember that family in your prayers after a lengthy struggle with a number of health problems and issues, he again passed away on Thursday. Enemies of the Cross of Christ. The title of the lesson this morning is drawn from that set of words in Philippians 3, verses 17 through 19 that was just read before our hearing just a few moments ago. As we give some thought to what it means to be an enemy of the cross of Christ, let's in fact begin our lesson by putting in perspective some of the things that are so bountiful and wonderful about the thrust of how the New Testament presents to us Jesus the Christ. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, the central figure in all the golden text of the Bible is in fact Jesus, the Son of God. He is lifted high as that tremendous and marvelous one who came to save us from our sins. He is described as in fact the great high priest of God, Hebrews 8 verse 1. We are told of the great love that God had for us in the giving of Him, John 3:16. We are reminded time and again of the atonement He paid for the awfulness of my sins and yours, as highlighted in that famous statement of Hebrews chapter 10. All the while, as we give thought and reflect upon the nature of Jesus as the Christ, it does bring us, though, to one of the sad statements, that inasmuch as the preaching of the cross should occupy a central feature of your thinking and mine, and inasmuch as the cross should be lifted high in marvelous respect, it still is the fact that there are some who are enemies of the cross of Christ. How can that be? How could one so conduct himself or herself so that they might be cataloged, honestly, as an enemy of the cross of Christ? I'd invite you to think with me about that text that was just read earlier, and let's use that to, de to develop our lesson, thinking of what it means today to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. And actually, as the lesson proceeds, one of the questions that we will ask of ourselves, am I an enemy of the cross of Christ? Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? This must, in fact, become personal because Paul will, in fact, lift it before us and accuse some of his day of being that enemy. And today we must ask ourselves, frankly and forthrightly, whether you and I are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Here are some introductory thoughts that prompt us to appreciate some of the features contextually that surround this passage in Philippians 3. The book of Philippians, as perhaps we each can understand, 
is a book that highlights the subject of joy. It highlights the matter of rejoicing. And it sets before us that despite external circumstances, we, through the mercy and grace of God, are able to appreciate enjoyment because you and I are connected through the Christ to the greatness of God. Paul felt that way, didn't he? Here was an individual who, as he wrote this letter, was actually in a Roman prison. And not only that, it was not a favorable position to be in. It was often a very terrible place. It was a place that was one that stinks. It was uncomfortable. It was often very dark, and it stayed that way for hours upon end, even in the daytime. And yet, despite that set of circumstances, Paul could discuss his rejoicing spirit. Rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. His interest and his insight was such that he could make statements like this. Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19, it was this same writer who in Philippians 4, 7 could say, The peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul was not one, you see, overcome with despair. He wasn't one overcome with discouragement, for despite the circumstances in which he was, he continued to hold out the banner of the gospel and the power of the Christ in all that he did and in all that he said. We notice also in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21, that interesting set of passages that was in some sense the slogan of the approach that Paul made. Here's what he said. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Isn't that interesting? In nothing, even in imprisonment, was he going to be ashamed, but Paul continued. For also in that verse and the next, he went on to say, as now always in my body, Christ shall be magnified, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was Paul, you see, who understood that his labors for the Lord were such that it would always be a matter of magnifying and exalting the greatness of Christ. If that was to come about by his life, so be it. If it was to come about in his death, and in the manner in which he met that death and in what would be his lot following death, then it still would be a magnification of the greatness and of the name of God. The Philippian letter, you see, is an overwhelmingly positive letter. Despite the circumstances in which it was written and despite the matter in which Paul was facing the authorities in Rome, it is at this point that you and I might come a little bit further and make the statement, what is it that allowed Paul to be so positive? And what is it that allowed him to face all these circumstances and to do so with a spirit that would result in a positive appreciation? Perhaps he summarized it best in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As Paul entered the Corinthian city, his central message was Jesus. His central message was the cross of Jesus, with the benefits that come to the human family as a result of that cross. 
And it was no different for the church in Philippi. It must be no different for us today. If you and I are to be positive, and if we are to be joyful, and if we are despite any circumstances that might come upon this land of ours, we must be grounded firmly and thoroughly in the cross of Christ. That must be where our hope lay. It must be where all the reality of what we hope for eternity is grounded. In light of all of that, we may again ask, how could then it be that somebody could be an enemy to the cross of Christ? given that all of these things we've discussed and these verses are built upon the beauty and power of that cross, yet there are those who are enemies of it. How can it be? Are they in their right mind? It would certainly seem not, at least spiritually. In fact, some of the other verses in this book will challenge us to give some thought about these enemies of the cross of Christ. Back to verse number 17 and 18 of Philippians 3. Listen again to the language, if you would, as to how Paul helps us see these enemies to the cross of Christ. He begins, Brethren, be followers of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Oh, how that rings with such a note of sadness. How it rings with such an impressive note that challenges us. How could anybody, in light of the blessings available through the Christ, the forgiveness of sins available through His name, and all of that coming about by virtue of those events that surrounded the cross, and yet there are those who live as its enemy. Some of these thoughts will take us a little bit further to ask us to notice again verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Paul begins by reminding us there are some who we should strive to emulate and imitate and follow. These who are setting a noble and powerful and right example before us. He said, be followers because you mark them, that is you study them, you analyze them, you match their life to what this word dictates. You follow their imitation and the example that they are setting. It may be here that you and I know of someone who particularly influenced us in life. Perhaps it was a father, a mother, an uncle, an aunt, all the above, or even someone else whose life was the exemplary thing that you and I remember about livelihood in the banner of the cross and in the reality of the church. That word mark, as it's used in verse number 17, You'll notice it means to keep a watchful eye on. It means, in fact, with great care to understand and to watch and observe. All of us know well that there are those watching us. Oh, most of the time we may not be really those that think about that, but someone is watching you. It may be someone at school. It may be many at school. It may be even someone who is far older than you or I. Perhaps a teacher is watching the way that you handle adversity, the way that you handle insult and ridicule. It may be that someone on the sports team that you play with is carefully watching 
the way that you are able to handle hardship. It could be someone else is watching with great intent to see the kind of person that you are. All of us are such that somebody is watching. Are we living up day by day so that they would recognize us not as an enemy of the cross? If they see in you and me someone who's an enemy of the cross, we are helping them along the pathway to destruction. We're helping them along the pathway of serving what we're about to discuss in verses 18 and 19. It is something to consider, isn't it? And it's something that challenges us because someone, including, of course, God, is always watching. In light of all of that, one final set of thoughts before we push this matter a bit further. It has to do with the way that verse number 18 begins. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now even tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Tears flowed down the face of the Apostle Paul on this occasion. As he made reference to and discussion of these who were enemies, Paul said, I've told you before, but now, with a broken heart, I tell you again, with tears streaming down my face, there are those who live, and there are those who choose to dwell as an enemy of the cross of Christ. I might submit it should bring a tear to our face too. It should cause tears to stream from our eyes as we give thought to the moving and compelling feature that Paul felt toward this. His heart was breaking. No wonder that when you and I give thought to those who live as an enemy to the cross of Christ, it should break our heart because of the choices they are making and the manner of life that they are choosing. With these as introductory thoughts, at least that prompt us on our way, Let's use particularly now verses 18 and 19, and very briefly, note just a few lessons that we might embed in our hearts to give some appreciation and thought to the seriousness of walking as an enemy to the cross of Christ. Beginning again in verse number 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often. There's our first lesson. It has to do with the tense of the verb and the way in which that verb is presented. It is interesting that verb is actually an active voice verb. And that means that it is a personal choice that these were making. No one was, was forcing upon them to walk as an enemy to the cross. They chose to do it. And they were choosing with grateful volition. That means in life. This opposes, of course, in all of its glory that manner of predestination as some today in the Calvinistic persuasion would teach it. As if there are some who are predisposed to be saved and others are predisposed to be lost. The Bible doesn't teach a single word of that. It is true that these had a choice. They could choose to walk as a faithful follower to the cross, but they could also choose to walk as its enemy. And sadly, they chose the latter. Many, Paul wrote... Doesn't that highlight that this was a decision, sadly, that many had chosen to make? There wasn't just a few, but many were choosing to live and to walk as this enemy. That reminds us of some of the comments the Savior had made, doesn't it? When Jesus in Luke 13, 23 was asked, Lord, are there few that be saved? The Lord said, yes, there will be but few who are saved. 
In Matthew's famous presentation of that truth, in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, "...enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it." You see, there are but two thoroughfares that one can travel. One of them is wide and easy to travel. One of them is very narrow. It's very difficult and it's very challenging. But Jesus said that wide one leads to destruction and many are traveling that roadway. It's like a great eight-lane interstate, easy to travel it. But however, that little country road that's narrow and winding, that one, though, it leads to life, you see. There are few that have found it. We notice that Paul wrote, there are many walking as enemies to the cross. Doesn't it still ring true today that many have made that terrible decision and are thus actively choosing day by day to walk as the enemy to the cross of Jesus? But what about a second lesson taken also from verse number 18? You'll notice Paul went on to say, I have told you often... That too is significant, isn't it? One time wasn't enough. Paul says, I've told you these things before. And Paul wasn't telling them to rub their noses in it. He told them because he loved them. And he wanted them to be keenly aware of the danger that lurked among the livelihood of those who chose to walk as enemies of the cross. I've told you this, but listen, please. You be careful and ever be watchful and on guard. That reminds us a bit about the slogan and the approach the Apostle Peter took, doesn't it? In 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 12 and continuing for three more verses, Peter highlighted the fact of one of the final destinations and final goals of his life. He said, Brethren, I intend, so long as there's life in this body, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, though you knew this. Peter was going to remind them. Paul intended to remind them. And today, aren't we thankful that God reminds us? He stirs up your mind and mine, the same gospel truths that were true 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. They're still true. And he reminds us of them. And when we read, analyze, study, and implement in life, we can be constantly reminded about the straight and narrow way that leads into life everlasting. We can be so thankful that we've been reminded. Paul, you see, reminded the Philippians. And you'll notice that he, of course, reminds you and me too every time we read the sacred scriptures and we allow its thoughts to rest upon our minds and we ponder the truths found therein. I've told you often. It is to be noted, though, that there are more lessons to appreciate. Let's notice yet a third one. Even beyond this one, you will notice with me number three, in fact, comes from verse 19. The verse begins by saying, whose end is destruction. That word whose makes reference to those that are the enemies of the cross. And so now we learn yet another piece of information about them. Their end, Paul wrote, is destruction. That word in Greek literally means perdition. And as you can see with it, it actually identifies utter ruin. That is to say, complete loss, eternal destruction. 
Paul held out no hope, you see, for these that were the enemies of the cross of Christ as long as they maintained this current path and as long as they maintained this current status. Their end, he wrote, is destruction. He didn't say it might be, it could be, perhaps. He said, I'm telling you, their end is destruction. Paul, you see, was keenly aware that there is life, of course, beyond the grave. But he also knew that there is a quality of existence that is awful and terrible. It's destructive. It is this existence, of course, in that place you and I recognize as Gehenna, the one identified by the Lord Himself in Matthew 25. As Jesus made description of that lake burning with fire and brimstone, this place that is an awful place of outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Mark 9, 43-48. It is a place, you see, of destruction indeed. Isn't it amazing as we give thought to what Paul has here asserted? These who are enemies of the cross of Christ have made a fateful decision, haven't they? They have thus chosen that walkway and course of life that will lead to their eternal ruin their eternal destruction. Look at some of the things that that directly teaches us. If it's true that walking as an enemy of the cross leads to destruction, doesn't that suggest that thus befriending the cross and living with the power and respectfulness of the cross will lead one to everlasting life? Jesus did say, didn't He, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. And Paul was so quick to begin the Roman letter by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 16 of Romans 1. Paul's famous presentation, or rather Peter's presentation of Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. That stone that the builders have set at naught has become the head of the corner. And neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Those who heard Peter make that statement in Acts chapter 4 were in fact moved, at least some of them. Many of them were moved in the wrong direction. They in fact considered Peter and John as their enemies and they had little interest in that which he proclaimed. But thankfully there were some who listened with keen, attentive ears and who did appreciate the grandeur and the message that was proclaimed that day. In all fairness, as you notice, one of the statements about rejecting the cross, what does that mean from Hebrews 10 verse 26? It is one of the saddest verses in all the Hebrew letter. At least it so seems to me. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received a knowledge of the truth there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That person who thus looks with terrible enemy character upon the cross, that person has no other means of forgiveness of sins, no other means of redemption, no other means of remission. There is no other way. And thus, if that person so chooses to live and walk as an enemy of the cross, he has forfeited all hope, all hope in that current state for everlasting life. If we sin willfully, after that we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That alone means that living and walking as an enemy of the cross is in fact a terribly tragic decision. 
as you'll notice in light of that third point, what does that say about a fourth one? Because Paul wasn't finished. You may also notice with me that he says something else about the pursuit of these individuals. Let's read that verse again, verse number 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Whose God is their belly. That's an interesting and poetic way of stating the following thought. Their God, meaning the thing they pursue the most, the idea that's the central feature and figure of their life, that which is the crux and ultimatum of all that they are, that which they follow is not the God of heaven. It's their own belly. Now, he didn't mean that they sit at a table and eat all the time. That word belly is simply a way of referring to the following. The belly makes reference to the heart, the innermost being. In essence, they were selfish in their pursuit. It's my way, my convenience, my pursuit, my ideals, that which I prefer. I don't care what God thinks. I'm not interested in that restrictive and constrictive kind of life that goes along with the cross. I'm not interested in giving up my drinking, my smoking, my carousing, my other things that I won't be able to do. I want to do what I want to do, they so say. Paul says their God's their belly and their end is destruction. And you'll notice that's confirmed with the very last statement of verse number 19. Who mind earthly things. Their central feature and desire surrounded earthly things, not spiritual things, not heavenly things, not godly things, but these earthly things. What was it Paul wrote in Romans 8, 6? For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so the choice again rests with us. Do you and I want life and peace? If so, we'll live spiritually. If, in fact, we want death and destruction, separation from God, then all we need to do is live carnally minded. So that our mind only pursues that which is materialistic and that which is upon the earth before us. That description and that distinction, in fact, is highlighted in a number of ways in the New Testament, isn't it? We're told, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, 15-17. And we're told by Jesus Himself in John 16, 33, Be not afraid, I have overcome the world. He, in fact, is that which allows us to appreciate a faith. And isn't it true that our faith is the victory that overcometh the world, 1 John 4, 4, as well as 1 John 5, 4? All of that challenges us completely and so thoroughly to note perhaps one final caution in that fourth lesson. You see, to say that one's God is one's belly and to say that one minds earthly, carnal things is to warn each of us about convenience about only pursuing those things in life that make it so easy for me. Not giving much concern about whether it's what God has said or not. Are you and I those whose God is our belly? We just want to do what we like, the way we like it, when we like it, and give less concern to what God has said or thus saith the Lord. Isn't it sad when Paul wrote of Demas, Demas hath forsaken me. 
having loved this present world. 2 Timothy 14. Demas made a bad choice. Demas, you see, had been a companion of the Apostle Paul. He had witnessed Paul's devotion and dedication to the ministry. He had seen Paul touch lives with the power of the gospel, and he forsook it because he loved this world. You see, is our hope laid up beyond? Jesus did say in Matthew 6, 21, didn't He? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure laid up here? Is mine laid up here? Or can you and I appreciate that Paul is here teaching us that our God had better not be our belly. Our God needs to be the almighty, awesome God of heaven. The one who created this universe and all things in it, Hebrews 11.3. The one who so loved us that He sent His Son to die for us, John 3.16. The one who has a ma- mansions prepared and are in preparation for those that are His own, John 14.1-3. The choice rests thus with you and with me. And with that in mind, we come to one final lesson, one final comment, because there's one final statement in verse number 19. Paul goes on to write that their glory is their shame. Isn't that an interesting play on words? You would think that the word glory would have with it that which is magnificent, that which is exquisite, that which leads to a great and powerful appreciation of something, and yet Paul says their glory is their shame. Shamefulness. Their choice to live as an enemy to the cross of Christ is a shameful thing. Oh, in their life, they may enjoy material prosperity, and they may enjoy any number of other things like fame and fortune and circumstance. They're perhaps recognized far and wide by many, but that matters not. For Paul said their glory is their shame. I would invite you to consider just a few verses that challenge us about this matter of their glory being their shame. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Those famous words of Jeremiah 3.25. On that occasion, that noble and fiery prophet of God directly asserted, Gentlemen, we lie down in our shame. How so? Because our sin has covered us. Sin is a shameful thing. It always has been and it always will be. Even though Satan is often a master at making it appear attractive and making it appear as if it is the proper and right thing, it is a shameful thing because attached to it is an enemy to the cross of Christ. Satan, you see, is no friend of the cross. On that occasion when the Master gave His life, and when He thus paid the price for human sin, we remember that in fact it fulfilled a prophecy from as early as Genesis 3.15. We remember that even though He was able to bruise the heel of the Master, the Master bruised His head. Ultimate defeat came to him that day, for Jesus died sinlessly. And furthermore, three days later, he arose, overcoming the grave and all the power of death, because he'd shackled the devil. And he had in fact paid the price to ultimately defeat him. And he would gladly allow us to join in that defeat of the devil, but the choice rests with us. And so the question that closes the lesson, are you an enemy to the cross of Christ, or are you a friend of the cross? A friend of the cross will obey the gospel plan of salvation. 
and a friend of the cross will live in faithful defiance and in faithful devotion to the matter of that cross. Because we understand that on that day, on that occasion, when those Roman soldiers, in fact, led Jesus to that place and the Jewish mob was crying for His blood, crying for His life, that blood that day was shed for you and for me. It wasn't shed for Jesus. He didn't have any sin. It was shed for your sins and mine. Just as surely as Zechariah had foretold it in Zechariah 13, verses 1 and 2, a fountain for cleansing had been opened outside Jerusalem. And don't we oftentimes sing that beautiful song, that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. You see, those who've lost all their guilty stains aren't living as an enemy to the cross of Christ. They are faithful followers to that cross. They love that cross. And if it meant it, they'd give their life in defense of it. What about you today? Are you an enemy to the cross of Christ? To this point, though you've heard the gospel plan of salvation, though perhaps you've witnessed and known of others who have been faithful examples of truth, to this point you've rejected that offer that God has made. To this point you've rebelled against God's offer. You've turned a blind eye to it. It's time to make a change. For at this point, just as we've learned today, if you live as an enemy to the cross of Christ, your end is destruction. There's no other hope. There's no other possibility. If today you need to respond publicly, it may be you've never become a Christian. You've never enjoyed your sins being washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Brother Harold has chosen a song of encouragement. If you need to obey initially, understand that God demands this of you. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. We read those things in John 8, 24 and Luke 13, 5. You must confess the name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God in the language of Acts 8, 37. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. If we could assist you in doing that, the baptismal waters are ready and warm. We could accomplish that in but a few moments. If you've become a Christian but you no longer are faithful, though once a friend of the cross, you now are an enemy. Don't remain in that state. Come back to your first love. The Lord beckons. He pleads for you to return to that former place of faithfulness. We could pray with you and for you today, and that we'd be happy to do in the words of Acts 8 verse 20. If we could help you today, would you not let that be known in what we might be able to do while together we stand and while we sing?